Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border, immigration, refugee, citizenship, and other legal issues. My name is Steve Mirens. On September 23, 2020, Leah Gazin, the Member of Parliament for Winnipeg Centre, introduced Motion 46, a guaranteed livable basic income. Motion 46 states that in the House of that, in the opinion of the House, the government should introduce legislation and work with provincial and territorial governments and Indigenous peoples to ensure that a guaranteed livable basic income, one, accounting for regional differences in living costs, two, for all Canadians over the age of 18, including single persons, students, families, seniors, persons with disabilities, temporary foreign workers, permanent residents, and refugee claimants, three, paid on a regular basis, four, not requiring participation in the labor market, education, or training in order to be eligible, five, in addition to current and future government public services and income supports meant to meet special, exceptional, and other distinct needs and goals rather than basic needs, including accessible, affordable social housing and expanded health services, replace the Canada Emergency Response Benefit on an ongoing and permanent basis in a concerted effort to eradicate poverty and ensure the respect, dignity and security of all persons in respect of Canada's domestic and international legal obligations. And that is Motion 46. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the concept of a universal basic income and how it would work in Canada. We discuss which types of immigrants would be eligible. Would permanent residents, temporary foreign workers, international students, asylum claimants, people who are here without status, etc., would they all be eligible to receive a universal basic income? How would a universal basic income impact other public funding? For example, would a basic income replace legal aid? Would a basic income cause inflation? Is there a risk that people from abroad would immigrate to Canada just to take advantage of a universal basic income? We discuss these questions and many others. For this, we are joined by two directors with the Basic Income Canada Network, an organization that advocates for a universal basic income in Canada and which helped draft Motion 46. The two directors are Sheila Reger and Samir Nurmohamed. Uh, I provide a more detailed description of, uh, of their background in the show. If you would like to learn more about Universal Basic Income, you can visit Basic Income Canada Network's website, which is basicincomecanada.org. There they have a plethora of information, including primers, videos, academic reading, and frequently asked questions. If you would like to support this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also email me at stephen.murins at larley.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. <laughs> And how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Regar or Regar? Regar. 
Regeer and Samir Nur Mohammed. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I am joined today by Sheila Regeer and Samir Nur Mohammed from the Basic Income Canada Network. Uh, Sheila is the founding member of the Basic Income Canada Network and a former executive director of the National Council of Welfare. And Samir is, are you a director of the Basic Income Canada Network? Yeah. Yeah, you're a director of the um, this advocacy group. And you're also a associate in the taxation group of Oslers, which is a very prominent law firm in Toronto. So thank you for, thank you both for coming on today. And what we are talking about is uh, basic income, the concept of a universal basic income, which has certainly gained a bit of traction um, over the last few years, and specific issues that arise in the immigration context. Uh, so I think that I'll start by saying I know I don't know a lot about this topic at all. I've heard Andrew Yang speak about it on a few other podcasts. Um, and that's about it, really. So my, from what I understand, it's a broad concept that implies, a, and you can correct me on this um, if I'm wrong on anything, is that the basic concept is that there is a, an amount that is not means tested that a level of government would give to every person in their jurisdiction and then beyond that's the basic concept and beyond that it varies according to the person advocating for whatever specific concept they believe in is that more or less what is the a concept generally with basic income or maybe one of you can define it more precisely so i'll take a crack at that then it's it's interesting that you start out with Andrew Yang because that's where a lot of people, including those in Canada, come to learn about this because he's been so influential. Um, the fundamentally the the idea of a basic income is that nobody should you know be in such dire circumstances that you can't meet basic needs. And what we want is the ability of government to provide direct unconditional cash income support so that everybody can meet basic needs, participate in society, and live with dignity. So those, those are the key elements. Um, there are some really key differences between Yang's approach and what tends to be more um, acceptable in Canada. So there are these two very basic models. One, without getting into tax terminology, we call a, the sort of guarantee model. And that's the way Canada runs its programs for seniors and for families with children. So you have a guarantee of an amount of money that you need to live on if the rest of your income is insufficient. So, you know, for me, for example, for a while I got child benefits and then I made too much money and I didn't. Um, back in the old days. The second model is what Yang's proposing, and that's more what's, what's described as a universal demigrant model. So that means everybody gets a check 
of the same amount and then through the tax system and other machinations, um, we ensure that the end result is still that the people who, who need it most benefit the most from it. So there's two essential models. Um, a number of Americans and you know some others in Europe and the rest of the world don't consider Canada's model to be universal, but we do because it works the way we describe universal health care. Everybody's part of the same program across the country. We all have access to health care as we need it. If you don't need heart surgery, you're not going to get it. But we do ensure that, that everybody's health needs are met accordingly. So the income system works that way. It's, it's a guarantee. So that's, you know, the fundamental ballpark. Um, the second big question, you, you mentioned the word means testing, and this is another area where there are some differences of opinion. Again, in Canada, we usually refer to means testing as what happens with social assistance, where some bureaucrat digs into your private life and your bank accounts and tries to figure out, you know, what means you have and what you really need before they'll give you money. Um, the income guarantee is based on your income, not all of these other things, whether you have a car that might be an asset or that sort of thing. It's simply income tested. And again, that's the way we run most of our basic income security programs for seniors and families with kids. So it's not, so the way it works in Canada then is it's not everybody just gets $1,000 a month or some amount it is based on if i understand like a flat floor that we want everyone to be at and the amount would vary to get the person to that floor is did i understand that correct so like if we determine that you know everyone needs i don't know twenty thousand dollars a year um to be above a poverty line say is the concept in Canada that people would receive different amounts to get them to that floor? Right. So if you have no other source of income, then yes, that would be your basic amount that you would get. If you do have other sources of income, the way most models work is that there would be a gradual reduction of the benefit based on your other income. <clears throat> the modeling that that our organization has done uh, is designed so that you continue to get some benefit and the security of the amount of money right up into the middle brackets. If you take a very practical example of people in the Ontario pilot, you know, people who had been formerly on social assistance, they would get the full benefit. It wasn't quite the $20,000, but, but they would get the full benefit. There were others in the pilot who were only getting two or three hundred dollars a month, for example, because they had other income, but it provided security and stability to them. And what was the Ontario pilot? Or is it still ongoing? Oh, unfortunately, uh, it was supposed to be a three year pilot. It was initiated by the Liberal Wing government and then canceled rather prematurely by the Ford government when it came in. Okay. And the, so how long did it run for? Oh, do you remember Samir? Like a year and a 
yet for yeah, the it participants? Was, it was between a year and two years. So and some so of the data it, was able to come in, but it wasn't complete, sadly. And is that the only uh, universal basic income test or experiment that's been run so far in Canada? It's it's the most recent and the most comprehensive. There were a number of pilots in the 1970s, both in Canada and the United States. Um, we have data on those. They were mostly interested in the effect on work, on labor yeah. force participation. Ontario was interested in a much wider group of effects. And there are ongoing pilots now all throughout the United States and Europe and different parts of the world. And in the United States, are they based more on the Andrew Yang model of everyone gets a check, if I'm describing his model correctly, or the Canadian, uh, what's a little slogan, the guaranteed income? Is that how you would describe it, a guaranteed income model? Yeah, like model? A, base, a basic income guarantee. A basic income, so at a test in the United States, more on the basic income guarantee or the everyone gets, because I think Andrew Yang's is everyone gets $1,000 a month. Um, so the tests that are running right now, are they more a guaranteed income or the the Andrew Yang model? They're, I think they're more the Andrew Yang model in the US. I think the idea is cutting checks, but I just want to, I just want to caution that I think the difference between these two models which sounds really significant when you just kind of lay it out. One model is give everyone a check and the other model is sort of an income guarantee. I think in practice, economically, these models actually are quite similar. Yes. Um, so an income, an income guarantee model says, if you make nothing, you get the full, say, $20,000 and then we gradually phase it out. The gradual phase out acts a little bit like a tax rate. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry for the tax reference. I'm a tax lawyer. <laughs> But, and I should probably mention that nothing I say is legal advice or kind of owes their opinions. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm doing basic income advocacy here. But what, what the point is that it, it acts sort of like a tax rate. And so you could either cut a check to everyone and then fiddle with the tax system. So pay for it. Um, or you could just do an income guarantee where the phasing out of the income guarantee is directly into the program. Economically, the two are the same. It's just a question of whether the phase that would happen in the tax system or in the basic income system. Yeah. Okay. And I think and the guarantee... Sorry, go ahead. So I was just going to say, we've modeled both. And, yeah. and so we, we've demonstrated what Samir is talking about. Yeah, because I think one of the questions... Um, like, I reached out to several friends and colleagues when I said that I was going to be having you two on, and everyone, there were certain themes that arose in the questions. And one of them was, well, why should like a billionaire benefit to the same degree as someone who's desperate? But it sounds like they it's don't. not the case that a billionaire would get an extra X dollars per year that they don't need because they already exceed the guaranteed income level. Yeah, that's, that's, so that's sort of right. I mean, under one of those models where you write a check to everyone, you know, theoretically, at least that billionaire might be collecting a check, but the check might be $20,000, whereas her tax burden might increase by millions. So, so, so really, you know, sure, okay, there's a $20,000 benefit I get in my bank account, but I'm paying out millions to help support other people. So I think practically this actually looks a lot more like billionaires helping pay out a basic income than getting a basic income. Yeah. Well, and that kind of goes to the second question that 
was asked, which is where uh, where does the money come from? So is it through just like increased taxes or is it um, <clears throat> through the same type of borrowing that we're seeing like right now during the pandemic to fund the CERB or what is the general long-term vision of where how a basic income is funded? So I think if we for now set this crazy CERB year aside for the moment, yeah. um, we did our modeling between 2017-2019. Um, one of the amazing things that Canada has is something called SPSDM. It's a statistical modeling system. So we can look at the way the tax transfer system is designed we can look at how we change it in order to fund a basic income and see what the results are. So that's what we did. We modeled things that we could statistically, you know, really do with a lot of rigor. So the first way of paying for a basic income essentially is redesigning and reprofiling all kinds of money that's already in the system. Um, some of Canada's tax system is progressive, some of it's regressive. We have tax breaks that only go to really wealthy people. We have other tax breaks that never find their way to people who have lowest income. So we redesigned those. And then in very simple terms, we brought in some additional tax measures, tax fairness measures to make sure that the, that middle income group doesn't get dinged and that the higher income brackets are the ones who are the net contributors. However, we state very clearly in the work that we've done that there are other sources, um, you know, beyond these tax related sources, we include transfers like social assistance that are provided by the provincial and territorial governments, because essentially there's no need for them. If you have a benefit level sufficient, um, like, like the one that we've recommended. But then outside of this, there are there are other places you can go. Um, some people have recommended new forms of tax like inheritance taxes, luxury taxes, that sort of thing. And then there's a whole realm of downstream savings. So people who think that a basic income is expensive have not taken account of how much poverty costs us. So costs, you would be familiar with this, in the criminal justice system, in education, in poor health care, um, in people who just are not able to live well and be healthy and make a decent income. Those people could all be contributing to our society and economy in much more productive ways if we invested in them. Yeah. And this is this is such an important question, Stephen. And um, what Sheila's talking about is all online. There's a very detailed policy options paper for those that want to read 60 pages on it. Um, there's also yeah, I can link to it in the uh, show notes. Yeah, there's UBI Works also has a few because they recognize that people might have different ways they would want to fund it. They actually have several different options as well. So there's a variety of options. Um, I just wanted to put some of the, some numbers on some of what Sheila was talking about because the numbers are astronomical in terms of the savings. Um, so by some measures the cost of poverty in Canada, by which I mean just like the loss of economic growth, the increase in healthcare costs or incarceration costs, all of that is $100 billion a year. Um, that doesn't include social assistance, which might be another 50. 
and it doesn't include uh, tax credits that are actually designed to help reduce poverty, which is another hundred. So if you add that up, we're actually spending a quarter of a trillion dollars every year in Canada just on poverty. Um, and so when, when you add that into sort of trying to make the tax system a little bit more progressive uh, by eliminating some of the really regressive tax breaks that are sort of available to everyone, like the RRSP or capital gains, but, but practically the benefit goes to the rich. Like it's sort of a backward system where the more money you make, the more benefit you get from these programs. So if you're really poor, you might say, I love my RRSP. I save $50 a year from it, but you don't love it as much as someone who saves $10,000 a year from it. Um, so if you were to remove a lot of those, that could be another couple hundred billion. And, and so anyway, you can start to see the numbers really add up that way. Yeah. What is the guaranteed income level set at? Is it the poverty line? Is it because I think you said in Ontario, it was less than 20,000 a year. But was that based on just is that reflective of what the ideal number is or? They they set theirs for various reasons, for political reasons that I'm not privy to, but they decided to set it at slightly less than a poverty line. There's no point in getting into the distinction between different poverty lines in Canada right now. But I think the point is that having a poverty line, having something to peg this measure to that's logical, um, and embedded in the system is really important. Social assistance, this is an area that I've worked in for years um, in, in terms of doing research and that sort of thing, it is pegged to nothing. But whatever the current political party in government decides, you know, is, is worth crumbs giving to people. Yeah. So setting it based on a poverty line at least it gives you a measure and a target to aim for so even if your rate isn't at the poverty line you're really reducing the depth of poverty enormously by bringing that in we set ours so that it would get people close to or slightly over like around a level that's comparable to most of the poverty lines in canada so in 2017 that was $22,000. In current dollars, it would be about the amount of the CERB on a monthly basis. Yeah. And it would be based on, so one of the, so like in British Columbia, and again, now I'm realizing this isn't the best. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting because I think, and maybe you've seen this too, is that the media is starting to, or the media might be misdescribing how the CERB, or not the CERB, basic income would work. Because uh, in British Columbia, for example, as a result of COVID, I think everybody under who makes less than $125,000 is getting a thousand, just a one-time $1,000 check. And it's being parsed down until an income of 175000 but and people have been making the comparison. This is how a universal basic income will work. But that's not that's not that doesn't sound at all like what is actually being proposed. No, not at all. And I think I'll just um, I, I have my own particular kind of approach on basic income that I like to. So I'll just pitch that what the end world that I would like to see is one where every Canadian got twenty four thousand dollars a year and where the tax rate was thirty eight percent on all your income. And so you could kind of quickly do the math, but if you made less than about sixty or $70,000, you'd basically just pay nothing. You'd get more in a basic income than you would 
paying tax. And so then effectively, you really only start paying tax after you kind of hit that middle class area. Um, and so that's, that's the theory, which is that, sure, you're, you're, you're making these $24,000 checks to everyone. You know, millionaires are getting it too. But what we've done is slowly increase their tax burden as well in a sort of simple way. Yeah. Um, and I guess like the method, although, so does it replace most social services or is it, because that's another question that I was asked um, by quite a few people is uh, in terms of where the savings would come from. I mean, obviously in terms of healthcare, if people are eating healthier, like I think fast food is something where the more you make, the less you eat and you eat healthier, the more money you have. There's obvious healthcare savings. But as far as things like, well, legal aid in the legal context, is it envisioned that legal aid wouldn't be necessary or is it still too soon to determine kind of which specific programs would no longer be necessary? Right. So this is something that comes up a lot. And I blame Milton Friedman um, and people's misunderstanding of Milton Friedman in a way. <clears throat> so he was, I mean, essentially the, the, an economist in the United States in the 1970s who supported the idea of a basic income at, a, at an extraordinarily modest level, like it was low. And he expected that would be sufficient for everybody to just get on with their lives in a market economy and get rid of everything else. So the important thing about Milton Friedman is less the fact that he supported in some way the idea of a basic income and more the fact that Milton Friedman was very much pro-market and anti-government. So yeah. just to set the record straight on that. Um, so a basic income is talking about money. We all need money. It's fungible. We get to spend it on anything. We get to make our own priorities. We know what our own needs are. <clears throat> we get to meet our lives as, as we find them. Services are an entirely different thing. This is a way that societies get together to develop public services that none of us could afford on our own. There are always going to be needs that we have as well that go beyond the basics. So if you have particular health or mental health concerns, you need access to services that are going to help you deal with that. If your income is still really low and you face legal bills for something, then that's a that's a different case too. Um, so people with disabilities, you know, it, on ODSP in Ontario, for example, people with disabilities on social assistance type thing get an additional $500, I believe, or a little bit extra per month that doesn't address the needs that they have. Um, you know, some people might have extraordinarily high medical costs that this doesn't suffice for. Yeah. So the income part and the services part are complementary. They work in synergy. If we brought in pharmacare, it would help all of us. It would help reduce prescription costs for all of us. But combined with a basic income, you'd have a lot of people who can eat better and stay healthier and aren't going to need prescription medications. Yeah. So, it, yeah, and I, 
I like to think that you should replace like with like. So if you're going to if you're going to put a basic income in place, which is a, a money program, then you might want to replace a lot of the existing money programs. So social assistance, which is in money um, and, 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 I, and also some of those low income tax credits uh, as well, which are just designed to help poverty, maybe a more efficient way rather than expecting people to file tax returns to get money is to just give it to them when they need it. Um, but you wouldn't want to replace, of course, things that are in kind. You wouldn't want to, you know, replace healthcare or any like anything like that. So, just speaking to the free marketeers out there, I mean, we're not, we're not talking about replacing government programs that are highly effective, right? Yeah. Just because of some blind belief in the free market. Like we're we're looking to kind of make the market work where it can and make government work where it can. And um, no, I think that makes like sense then. What needs people like once the money's there, presumably the needs of people will also change dramatically. Um, so going into well, actually, so M46, the guaranteed the motion by Leah Gazin in the House of Commons regarding a universal basic income. Was that does her motion kind of reflect your organization's vision um, for UBI in Canada? <laughs> Yes, we, we worked with her on that um, because even though it's Leah Gazan's motion, she herself describes it as the people's motion. So yeah. she talked to stakeholders. She talked to all parties. Um, you know, she got broad-based support and a lot of expert advice in putting that together, including Samir's. Yeah. So I'll read the motion and then we can talk about maybe the, the specific immigration questions that arise. Um, so the motion reads uh, that... In the opinion of the House, the government should introduce legislation and work with provincial and territorial governments and Indigenous peoples to ensure that a guaranteed livable basic income, one, accounting for regional differences in living costs, two, for all Canadians over the age of 18, including single-person students, families, seniors, persons with disabilities, temporary foreign workers, permanent residents, and refugee claimants, three, paid on a regular basis, Four, not requiring participation in the labor market, education, or training in order to be eligible. And five, in addition to cure, current and future provincial or current and future government public services and income supports meant to meet special, exceptional, and other distinct needs and goals rather than basic needs, including accessible, affordable social housing and expanded health services, replace the CERB on an ongoing and permanent basis in an effort to eradicate poverty and ensure the respect, dignity, and security of all persons in respect of Canada's domestic and international legal obligations. So the question that I guess arises in the immigration context is which groups that aren't, or which groups of people that aren't citizens would be eligible? And the motion mentions that Foreign workers, permanent residents, and refugee claimants would be included. It doesn't explicitly say international students. Am I right that they would just be included under the students category? Or is there, do you envision, like, which groups, I guess, do you envision um, receiving, being eligible for the universal basic income and not, um, and specific groups that aren't in the motion include like long-term visitors as well as people without status 
in Canada. So this is so there. Can I can I Samir? I'll provide like just two sentences worth of very general general answer, and then Samir is going to go into the details. So the essence of a basic income isn't just about individuals; it's about our society overall. Yeah. So the goal of a basic income is to be as inclusive as possible rather than to be exclusive and find qualifications that weed people out. So if you are part of Canada, if you are part of our society, if you are here, then you should be part of this program. So that's the general ethos that we're working towards. Within that, there are like a number of legalities and different things and ways of categorizing people that exist already. And Samir can talk to those much better than I can. Sure. So I, I think the overarching question that I, I would say is that, or sorry, the overarching principle here, I think, should be that basic income should be available to all people who are resident in Canada. And I would qualify that resident in Canada for tax purposes. Now, why tax purposes? So there's really two main reasons. One is that basic income, the way we envision it, and I think many others do as well, would be administered by the tax system, by the CRA. The reason for that is we want it to be totally seamless as a part of our tax system. We don't want there to be uh, sort of a bureaucratic red tape in terms of administering it. We want it to be the people who already know our bank account information can just put yeah. it right into our bank accounts, right? Um, and at the same time, the CRA are the people who keep an eye out for tax cheats, make sure that our system is functioning properly. properly. Um, and then the second point is that we want the people who are liable to pay tax in Canada to get a basic income. We don't want you to be considered by the CRA to have to pay taxes and then not get a basic income. And probably we don't really want the other, the opposite either. We don't want someone living somewhere else in the world who has no connection to Canada getting a basic income. So that's just the really obvious kind of big picture. Now, what does that actually mean? Residency for tax purposes is actually a pretty complicated concept. And I won't kind of discuss all the factors involved, but the CRA has some good information on that. But typically, I would say for most Canadians, it'll be pretty obvious. You live here, you spend all your time here, you're a resident of Canada. And that's true not only for citizens, but also for permanent residents and many other groups of people. So going back to that motion, um, the language used is that basic income is available to all Canadians, including a list of groups. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're an international student or if you're a temporary worker, you automatically get a basic income. It means that if you are a Canadian who is a temporary worker. Now, let's say you're from Mexico, but you spend a lot of the year in Canada and you're super tied into Canada uh, and you work in Canada most of the year and, you know, you live here, you're probably a Canadian. Um, and so our objective here is to try to make that person get a basic income. And that's why we want it to be tied into the tax system. Uh, so now with that overarching principle that residents of Canada should get a basic income, I would add that there may be people who are trying to become residents but are not yet residents. And rather than making their life difficult and preventing them from getting a basic income as they try to make their way into Canada, I think we do want to be as inclusive as possible. So I think a big category of this is like asylum claimants who may have just landed or may not have landed yet or on their way in. I think we want to start paying them basic income as soon as we can so that we can help them integrate. I mean, these are people who are fleeing their country, so clearly they're trying to be connected to Canada, not to where they're coming from. Um, and so eventually they would be liable to pay tax in Canada uh, and considered part of the tax system. International students, I'll just address that one. 
I think that's a really difficult question because international students obviously have a strong connection to Canada and live here a lot of the year, but they may also live for a large chunk of the year in other countries and may have even more significant ties to those countries. And that makes it really hard to have a blanket statement about whether international students would automatically get a basic income, um, which is why I like tying it into what the CRA's determination is ultimately decided by, say, the tax court would be on the residency of those individuals. Do you think it would like this when we talk about the an individual, like the guaranteed income level? It uh, do you think it requires like a pro like is it based on family or the individual in determining um, what someone's needs are and what their income level is? Because I know right now Canada is taxed based on the individual, um, although some benefits are based on household income. Is the basic income like in the case of that student? There's an like it's a, especially in Vancouver. I don't know if it's the same in Toronto. There's a lot of public frustration with um, international students who own multi multi million dollar homes with zero income. Is would a basic income be based on family income or just the tax residency? of that individual? So, so my perspective on this is that basic income should be paid to the individual. And so it's, it's paid at the individual basis, but I agree that you would take into account, and uh, this, sorry, this depends on the different model you look at. So yeah. um, the BICN policy paper has a bunch of different options, so it could work differently. Um, but I think the main idea is that we adjust how much you get based on the size of your household. So if you, if you live in Canada as a student, and you live alone, well, your household is one, right? It's just you, your, your family who you're not living with, they're not your household anymore. And so I think that's, that's no different than any, any adult who doesn't live with their elderly parents. Um, so, so I think for those people, those, their parents' income are not, should not really be taken into account. And the fact that they don't live in Canada is, is sort of neither here nor there. But now, I mean, you know, this is, this is where this is so fact specific. You know, you can think of like the Somali student who's moved here personally, per- permanently and trying to get a job here after graduation versus someone who's come here for just a couple of years and then is going to return to California to live with her parents. You know, maybe that person is different. Um, and that's why I think I think to some extent it might depend on your intention. Where do you plan on living after graduation? And I think that for some international students that this may be a complicated question. I think, yeah. frankly, the international students scenario is probably the hardest question regarding basic income and residency by far. Yeah, well, that and the people who are here without status, because if it's based on Canada Revenue Agency filings, they would make those filings at the risk of, you know, sticking their head up and yeah. remove, like possibly being <laughs> removed. Um, but I can't, and I don't know if it's, if there have been any ideas on how it would be available to someone who's here without status or if realistically on a model that's based on people filing taxes if someone isn't filing taxes they wouldn't be eligible i'll just say two things about that because i think well before i say anything i should point out that your audience may actually have better answers on these questions than sheila and i do so (laughs) take that all with a grain of salt Uh, and and you yourself might but i but but i but i do think that 
the basic income is not just the people who file taxes. So the idea is that there, there are tons of Canadians who don't file taxes for whatever reason, but are still liable to pay taxes and would still be receiving a basic income. Um, so, I, so I think that, that's a key part of the point. I think another uh, possibility is that a basic income could be similar to sanctuary cities in the United States in that we don't need to say that just because you're collecting a basic income, you need to open yourself to exposure in other, in other areas of you know, your life in Canada. Um, so that, that's, that's a question that could be considered perhaps by people who know a lot more about immigration than Sheila and I do. Yeah. And, yeah, I would. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I I would agree, and we don't know all the circumstances that might arise. And I think in looking at designing a basic income, I mean, we've done it based on, you know, an understanding of the categories that 99, whatever, you know, like a very large percentage of the population would fit in. But we know that there are going to be exceptions and are trickier circumstances that may need some modification or, you know, a, a little bit more case by case. One of the interesting things we, we found not related to immigration, but that came up when we were doing the, the modeling where we thought we were giving everybody with low income this amount of money and discovered that there were still a small group of people who weren't doing better. And we went, oh, how, how does that happen? And when we went exploring it, we found the situation where we have child benefits for people um, under the age of 18. Um, and yet we also have a situation where you may have some young single parents who are only 17 themselves, but they are the mothers they're getting child benefits for their for their infant and toddler, but they themselves are getting <laughs> are not getting any support. So, yeah. we thought, well, obviously, from our perspective, we would give the 17 year old mom her money. Like it only makes sense. So I think there are situations around, you know, international students in particular is a tricky one where you might need to develop some other parameters to figure out you know where where it goes and, and where it might not yeah um some of the other questions that i was asked aren't like they don't seem as applicable based on a guaranteed base income model like i've uh, several software developer friends were concerned that it would lead companies to try to reduce wages by the amount of the income that people were getting from the state but it sounds like you know, if you're making four times or five times the poverty rate, I don't <laughs> see based on the model of this being done uh, to get to a, a, a not uniform amount per person that that concern would arise. Is that your general sense as well? Yeah, the, the labor market interaction is really interesting. And one of the things we do know from pilots, first of all, is that there really is no work disincentive here. That's a complete and absolute myth. And from an immigration perspective, especially um, for immigrants who are not coming from predominantly white countries, um, there is a lot of racism and and that sort of thing embedded in some of these ideas about the work ethic of those people. Um, but from a, a direct labor market perspective, it's really interesting because if 
and and for immigrants and people young people trying to get established in canada in in the beginning um people now are forced to take jobs with horrendous circumstances and terrible wages so what the basic income does is give you the ability to say no um if this is a tough job and, and it needs to be done, then you need to be able to pay a reasonable wage and have reasonable working conditions in order to be able to do that. And a basic income also allows you to say yes to an opportunity that might not pay very well, but gives you experience or lets you do something that you really love or lets you try out two or three jobs to find out what is going to be a good lasting economic platform for the rest of your life. So having having those options in the labor market is is amazing. Is that something you've encountered people who are concerned that it would bring quote unquote a lazy immigrant to Canada? Has that concern been expressed? Cuz like from where I sit the immigration programs are for the most part based on either family reunification or economic migrants who typically have to have a job anyways. So I don't I don't see why a basic income would impact the actual composition of who immigrates here. But is that a misconception that you've encountered amongst people who you've advocated to? I don't think it's specific to immigrants except except for this idea that people have that poverty is something that happens to other people, people who aren't as worthy, people who made bad decisions in their life, people who don't have the same work ethic, people who won't make the same decisions as I would make. That, that sense of judgment and lack of trust of people, like it's, it's psychologically very deep and it is profoundly rooted in racism and in an immigration history. If you look at the waves of immigrants coming into the United States, I mean, first it was slaves who were, you know, completely and absolutely lazy the minute they got emancipated, <laughs> which, you know, makes absolutely no sense at all. But as you had Italians and Jewish people, everybody coming in was suspect. And the labels would start to apply to them. They're lazy or or they're greedy or they're going to abuse our system. And that like it's it's horrible. I mean, that that mentality still pervades a great deal. And it pervades a lot of what's going on in the United States now, but Canada as well. Yeah. And, and I think it's really sad, but it's there. It, it it is, and I think well, like I think what's related to this is part of it is we just tend to think that that other people are going to be lazier than we are, and there's some really interesting surveys on basic income where they ask people and they say, okay, so do you think like what percentage of people do you think would be lazy, or do you think people would be lazy? Um, and they ask those sorts of questions, and then they say, how would you change your behavior if you got a basic income? Would you decide to quit your job and just stay at home and? taking your paycheck or take your checks from the basic income, or would you continue working? And what they found was something like 2% of people or less were thinking of making a change at work that would result in them taking fewer hours or staying at home. Whereas something like 40 or 50% of people actually thought that others would be lazy. 
So we just tend to like overestimate others or, or maybe we're overestimating how good we are. But one way or another, there's a disconnect between ourselves and others. Yeah. Were there any studies on um, how the CERB impacted uh, like that, whether there were more people who didn't work? Because I know in the we helped some companies recruit foreign workers and it was interesting that some of them did receive applications and interviewed Canadians who said that they would like to take the job, but only when the CERB payments stopped. And I don't know if that's because CERB was temporary and they just wanted to ride it out. But have there been any studies on, um, besides my anecdotal observation <laughs> of a very small number of individuals, how CERB impacted that willing, like whether people would work or not? Because I was surprised by it, quite frankly, that people were applying and saying that they only wanted to work when the CERB payment stopped for jobs that paid four times CERB. It was really, I was quite stunned actually by the, some of the, like some of what was said during those interviews. Yeah. My, my short answer is that I don't know. And I truly hope that the federal government has been monitoring this and we'll have some studies that can provide some information for us because mostly what we've heard is anecdotal as well. Um, and, and there are so many different explanations for people's decisions yeah. that, I mean, CERB is, is it, it came out with flaws in a time where like everybody's lives have been turned upside down. So I've seen situations where people want to work, but they're desperately afraid because um, in our condo corporation, for example, people providing cleaning services and things like that, they don't want to be exposed to people. They're afraid. And many of them are from immigrant families and their families are really large. And if they contract COVID and, and take it back to their families, then many more people are going to be exposed. Um, we've heard employers complaining, um, you know, that people don't want to work, but, but we don't know the circumstances around that, what the working conditions are like and that sort of thing. So it's, it's such an unusual time. And then we know lots and lots of other people as well um, would really love to be back at their jobs somewhere other than sitting at home all the time in front of a computer, but they have to be there because their kids are there. Yeah. So many different circumstances. Another one is, is the long haulers that we know very little about in Canada. We assume, and our benefit system assumes, that if you get COVID, you either die or you're better in two weeks. And yeah. Sorry, when you say long haulers, do you mean truckers or... No, long haul COVID. Oh, long haul COVID. Okay, uh, sorry. Long haul yeah. <laughs> COVID people. Yeah. So our benefit system, you know, like you get two weeks sick leave. It assumes that if you contract COVID, you either get really sick and die or you're better in two weeks. And that's not the case at all. So we have people who are officially designated as, you know, you should be able to, sh to show up back at your job again after two weeks, but you can't. So I think, I think a big part of this as well is that, that programs like CERB and also obviously social assistance have flaws or have bugs and glitches and things that don't really work about them. 
but a lot of those bugs and flaws are actually features of the system, right? So these are they're targeted programs that are designed to exclude certain people or uh, prevent people from getting social assistance or SERB in certain circumstances, which is, of course, what a basic income tries to avoid. Um, and I think it's those very, when, when you come up to a cliff in one of these programs, like sometimes social assistance, a social worker will say, if you have more than $1,000 in your bank account, you immediately lose all benefits for the year. Um, and so if you have a family friend or someone who says, you know what, you're going through a really tough time, here's $500, hope it helps, um, boom, your account goes over the balance, you lose all your money. So, so something like that is, is sort of a draconian, weird little quirk of the system that's actually a feature, right? It's designed to prevent people from having, that have too much money from getting it. And CERB had a lot of those sorts of traps and gaps that can actually really discourage people from trying to be successful in the world um, because they're punished when they do so. And a basic income, the idea is that we're, you wouldn't be punished for that. So hopefully there isn't any disincentive to doing, to, you know, seeking your own success in the world. Yeah. Which jurisdictions in Canada are, do you see over the next, say, it's hard to say with COVID, but like one to three years um, being receptive to uh, the basic income pilot projects? Like are some so, more receptive? Like do you think the feds seem on board or the Ontario government or is everything so COVID preoccupied right now that it's hard to say? It's hard. A lot of people are COVID preoccupied. And I think one of the things that I find most fascinating is that within every political party, within lots and lots of organizations, you will find tremendous support for basic income. But then there are also others who are who are a bit on the fence. Prince Edward Island is really interesting because they have all party support for basic income. They are <clears throat> a small province. It's very unlikely that anybody but Ontario or perhaps British Columbia could ever do a basic income on their own. This has to be a national program. You, you have to have the federal government involved. They have the tax power to be able to do it. Um, so Prince Edward Island has been looking towards the federal government to work with them to develop something, not to pilot in Prince Edward Island, but to start in Prince Edward Island. So if there are bugs, if there are some things we can learn before we roll it out to the rest of the country, come to PEI, we're happy to work with you. Um, <clears throat> British Columbia has got this study that's been done that's supposedly going to be released soon. I understand it's done, but the, but the government hasn't released it yet, so we're not sure what's going to be in that. We know that Nunavut is um, in the process of doing some work on feasibility. They, they've asked for some help to do that. Newfoundland and Labrador, I believe, is very much interested in this. Um, their province is facing a real crisis. I expect the more we see the impact of COVID and realize that things are not going to magically get better once we're all vaccinated, um, I, I think it's going to make more and more municipalities and provinces realize that federal income support for their population is going to be really critical for them to be able to do what they can with their resources to deliver services and things within provincial responsibility. Yeah. And are all of the, like the Prince Edward Island, the political support, is it based on the M46 model? 
I think so generally. I'm I'm not sure if they consider things at, at that level of detail, but I I do think that they have had some modeling done which would indicate, you know, who might be in there and who wasn't. When we our modeling systems don't allow us to include the whole population. So I'm yeah. not sure what Prince Edward Island has done, but uh but yeah, I, I would imagine they would they would want to be as inclusive as possible because the organizations there follow the same sort of ideas around the basic income we want principles as BICN. So inclusive as much as possible. Yeah. Um, the other question that I was asked, um, although again, it was based on someone's assumption that the Andrew Yang model of if everybody gets $1,000 a month, what is to stop landlords from simply charging an extra $1,000 per month? Um, doesn't It doesn't sound like it would apply based on this guaranteed minimum income. Like, is that the general feedback that or impression that the studies have shown is that there wouldn't be uh, just gouging of people of the say renter class by the landlord class because the landlord class just assumes that everyone has more money now or in the lawyer context that you know somebody who um let's say an asylum claimant who may have been represented pro bono before would now just be told well i know you get a universal basic income so i'm not going to represent you for free anymore because you can give me your universal give me your payments from the government I, I think I'll just I'll take that head on because I, I think even if we had an Andrew Yang style basic income, it wouldn't happen. I think the evidence is quite clear on that. So, um, so I, I don't mind addressing it that way, because the, the truth is that it has a lot to do with how markets actually work. And and I, I think it was so interesting. This is similar to your question earlier that wouldn't employers just pay less? Wouldn't landlords just charge more? Um, and the truth is that we are all humans as humans in multiple different capacities in different markets. So we're, we're tenants, we're homeowners, we're employees, we're business owners, we're consumers. And so it's not kind of clear why any one segment of that would dominate all the rest. And even if we were to just simplify and look at just one segment, let's say that all I do is spend all my money and put it into say rent, why wouldn't the landlords just charge me an extra thousand dollars now they know I have it? And I mean, I think my first question is, why wouldn't I get better accommodations with it, right? Like, if I'm spending more, and you might say, well, you have the more money, and you know, the landlord can just charge you. Well, maybe some other landlord will say, well, you know what, you you've got a thousand bucks, I'll just take nine hundred, you know, I'll undercut that other landlord, and and eventually you'll see some competition. And wh where do you get to the equilibrium? Depends yeah. on what in economics we call elasticities, but it's essentially like you know, the market forces do interfere, and and you don't ultimately just get this immediate transfer of basic income to other people. Um, the, 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 ex, the economists that have looked at this and they study things like inflation, which is essentially what this concept is, right? We're looking at inflation. Really, inflation only happens in two ways. It happens when you actually increase the amount of cash in an economy. And that's not actually what a basic income is doing because you're financing it through other measures. You aren't literally just printing money and paying out. You're either, you know, taking money from savings elsewhere, or you're taxing it, or you're running up a deficit, you're not just printing money. Um, and so because of that, you don't, you shouldn't get that type of inflation. 
there is actually one way you might get a little bit of inflation. So maybe the landlords don't charge $1,000 more, but maybe it's $4 more. And the reason you get that is because uh, a basic income has been shown to boost the economy. So there's the Roosevelt Institute study in the US, um, and then there's the Kansaya one that UBI Works just did a few weeks ago that showed that the Canadian economy, I think, would be grown by $80 billion a year. Um, so if you look at that, there would be economic growth, and economic growth should result in some inflation. And that's kind of this idea that the economy is doing so well, and we're trying to hire as many people as we can so quickly, and people are buying so much stuff that like supply just can't keep up. And that does lead to a little bit of price increase, but it's always much smaller than the economic growth. And that price increase is based on money kind of leaving wealthy bank accounts and being recirculated back into the economy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's like a short-term price increase. It's like, you know, today 100 TVs are bought, but suddenly everyone's richer and wants to buy 500 TVs, but the supply isn't there. So the cost of a TV goes up, but only until TV manufacturers can just make more, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that's important, I think a lot of people, especially when you think about without understanding how it works, thinking about the Andrew Yang $1,000 a month or the CERB $2,000 a month kind of thing, and thinking that everybody is like getting that net and they don't. It's a very small percentage of the population that's going to actually get that maximum benefit. And nobody, your your landlord, your employer, nobody is going to know what you're getting. They're not. So yeah. the only way that I can see where you, where I think your term was right about gouging. So there is some concern that you might see price gouging at a kind of neighborhood level where you have real concentrations of low income people where you know that that neighborhood um, is going to have people with more resources now. And so that's a municipal issue that, you know, basic income doesn't do everything. You, you have to have municipal rules and regulations and make sure that that landlords don't do that. Um, it happens, I know already with social assistance that some grocery stores and people who know that people have to shop in the neighborhood and can't afford to go anywhere else, they increase their prices the day the welfare checks come out because people are vulnerable and have no choice. Basic income gives you a choice. Your neighborhood grocery store does that, you get on a bus and go somewhere else. Yeah. So I think there are lots of ways that that we level these out and, and deal with these other problems. But Samir is right. Like we're not pumping a whole lot of extra money into the economy. We're redistributing it, especially so that those who can barely participate in the market economy now actually get a foothold. And I think, I think like a basic income sounds like really magical and, and not realistic in the sense that, well, how, how, how can we just create money and give it to all these people? Like what a silly idea. Um, and I think the truth, as Sheila is saying, is that it's, it's not really like that at all, really. I think it's, it's more like, you know, fixing the flaws with our social assistance program, which is it's not the poverty line. We kind of punish people when they actually start earning money, and then we kind of put them through all this red tape that sometimes they can't even get it. When you take away all those three problems, you just get a basic income. So, so I, I think the, that's, that's kind of what would happen is that a basic income isn't really sort of this, this panacea, this magical idea so much as just fixing the flaws with our current system. And so you wouldn't expect some sort of magical uh, effect. 
And I think the other point is that we do have proof and that we already do have two basic incomes in Canada. We have one, as Sheila said, for, for families with children. We have the Canada Child Benefit, which is, for, for, except for the very rich, it's essentially an amount that's paid to all parents. Um, and we also have old age security, which again, except for the rich, is essentially paid out to all seniors. Um, and neither of these have shown that kind of, that, that, that inflationary impact on the economy. Yeah. So we're coming up on an hour. Where can people learn more about how about the actual proposal in Canada as opposed to what they might hear uh, from their friends regarding what's being proposed? So one of the best places to start is our website um, and the policy options paper that we've put together. But there's lots of information there. Um, in some senses, too much. We are in the process of updating our website and, and trying to make things simpler for people newly arriving at this concept and trying to understand that. Um, there are regional organizations and local ones. So in British Columbia, um, there is a group in, in Vancouver, I believe, and, and there are others in Victoria. On our website, there were ways to contact the provincial and local groups. Um, there's lots in the news. If people are interested, there are reports being done by lots of organizations, the Royal Society of Canada, um, UBI Works has, has put out Cancia's work, as, as Samir mentioned, um, the Institute for Research on Public Policy. There are webinars galore for people interested in different issues. Yeah. No, I'll include a link to um, the. Uh, I'll include a link to the your website in the show notes because I think it's it's good to go straight to the source because I feel like some of my misconceptions may have been a result of the media. And how it's sometimes presented there, understandably, because it's a complicated concept that is often now linked to the CERB and the amount of spending during COVID. Right. Uh, but, uh, of, yeah. Sorry, if I can add, one of the things that's on the website, there are two things that are a little bit hard to find now. We're, we're trying to make them easier. Uh-oh, my battery's getting low. If oh. you can, yeah, if I you can, can still, still hear you. me, I'll go ahead. Um, so one is a really beautiful little two and a half minute animated video uh, done by Adam Godreau Brown that, you know, gives you the essentials of how basic income works. And the other is called our primer series. So it tells you very short little documents, couple of pages each that tell you what this is about and what the Canadian context looks like. So those yeah. are really good places to start. Yeah, I see that. I just went to your website and under resources at the top, there's the first tab is basic income primer series, 12 short primers on frequently asked questions. So I will link to that for sure in the show notes. Cool. Well, that's all I have um, for today. Certainly email me any other uh, links or documents that you want me to post. Um, and thank you for coming on today. Definitely taught me a lot and dispelled some misconceptions that I had, uh, which is good. Thank you very much. Pleasure thank you. Being on. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Have a, have a good one. Thank you so much. Okay.